Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be continuing our discussion of Jordan Peterson's God. You see, Nietzsche, he said that the West would degenerate both into nihilism and into totalitarianism, and that millions of people would die as a consequence of the death of God. And that's Dostoevsky prophesied exactly the same thing in The Devils, and it's exactly what happened. And I don't believe that we can get past the Scylla and Charybdis of nihilism and totalitarianism without going back to the past to find what it has to offer us, to bring it forward in an articulated manner. And of course, that's... Jordan Peterson doesn't believe very many of the things that the majority of Christians would consider essential to being a Christian. He says he believes in a God, but he isn't using the commonly accepted definitions of belief, God, or truth. We talked about truth in part one, and God to a lesser extent, which if you haven't listened to already, I would recommend before this one. We'll get to what he means by belief in a minute, and I should say if any of you find this to be a bit tedious, all this redefining of basic terms and trying to navigate one particular person's odd religious beliefs, I also find it a bit tedious. But I think it's important because for one, I don't really see him going away, and his version of Christianity is gaining some popularity so it's worth understanding in some detail. So before we finally get to the meat of what Jordan Peterson's God actually is, let me just set the stage with an exchange between Harris and Peterson. The truth value of a proposition can be evaluated whether or not this is a fact worth knowing or whether or not it's dangerous to know. No, but that's the thing I don't agree with, because the highest truths, let's put it that way, the highest truths are moral truths. And I know that I'm gerrymandering the definition of truth, but I'm doing that on purpose because I'm trying to nest truth within a Darwinian framework, which I think is a moral framework. There are certain ways of paying attention that are dangerous, right? There are certain things that we shouldn't be doing, which we're tempted to do. Right. And I think one of those things is defining the world as in a materialist, realist terms. I happen to think that. And I have my reasons. I think you are committed to elevating the concept of truth, or what you imagine to be elevating it, into this kind of the the moral stratosphere, where it it, it entails goodness. Yes, that is precisely and exactly what I'm doing. There's no doubt about it. He goes to all the trouble of redefining these words and avoiding sounding like a materialist because he thinks we need Christianity and God. But with all our knowledge of science and philosophy, it's incredibly hard to believe any of that stuff. So he's trying to find an intellectually respectable way to believe in God and hold to Christian values in the present day. He believes that there's a lot of moral value and psychological truth in Christian mythology. And in fact, he believes that Western civilization was built upon a substructure of Judeo-Christian values. And if we don't maintain these values, our society will just fall apart, which is why he was featured so prominently in the Western Values episode. And now we're closer to what Peterson's God actually is. God fits in the category of metaphorical truth that we outlined in part one. Jordan believes that it's extremely beneficial to believe in God. He thinks that it serves life, and that's what truth is by his definition. 
In his mind, what could be more true than something that's preventing the destruction of Western civilization? We need Christianity. So this leads to the question that I alluded to earlier. How are we supposed to deal with the death of God? At this point in history, how can it be defended on any rational grounds? Well, one way is to redefine truth. We can speak about truth in such a way as to protect God and Christianity from science and reason. That way, even if we're atheists like Jordan, we can preserve the important parts of the substructure that he believes religion created. So why is he, quote, gerrymandering the definition of truth and changing it in such a way that it entails goodness and not strictly what's real? The only reasonable conclusion that I can see is that he thinks we need to lie to keep everything going. Religion is a useful fiction. Actually, it's a necessary fiction, and we need to maintain this lie at the heart of civilization to prevent it from degenerating into, quote, nihilism and totalitarianism. In one interview citing Carl Jung, he said that your highest value is your god, because it serves the same function as a god psychologically. And on his view, it's difficult, if not impossible, to distinguish between a literal god and a highest value. Again, the purpose of all this is to preserve the function of religion, as he sees it, without running afoul of our scientific and philosophical progress. In other words, the purpose of all these games is to preserve the function of God without denying that God doesn't literally exist. The function that God served did exist. It changes people's behavior and the course of entire civilizations. So the idea of God had an influence in the real world, and unlike new atheists, he sees it as an overwhelmingly positive influence. So that function is what he believes in and it's what he's trying to preserve in the wake of the death of God. I would say that, that the, there are, there's great purpose in looking at these ancient stories in the same way, Sam, as there's great purpose and utility in reading fiction. So, and, I, and I don't mean that in a derogatory manner. Mm. I mean, here's a sentence for you, and perhaps you can tell me what you make of it. There is great truth revealed in Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and Shakespeare. How would you characterize that truth, though? Because it's certainly not factual by, by any stretch of the imagination. It's, it's a different sort of truth. The reality is that most religious people would be appalled by the claim that the Bible is a work of fiction, including the founders of the religion. Science doesn't come into conflict with Dostoevsky. It doesn't come into conflict with Shakespeare. It comes into conflict with religion, because the vast majority of religious people, past and present, believe it's literally true to some degree. If everyone understood the Bible's truth to be in the same category as Dostoevsky's fiction, that, in my view, would be a tremendous success. This is a question I've asked before, and one I don't really know the answer to. What is the future we should want for Christianity? I think the optimal state of affairs would be reducing it to a social club where people can meet and talk about things like meaning and wisdom, but I don't want it to have any political power at all, and I don't want a single person to believe it literally. But how could we potentially get there? As in, what do the intermediate steps look like? And if we couldn't reduce the power and influence of religion to the optimal levels, shouldn't we still aim for reducing it? I don't often invoke Ken Ham to support my arguments. But he, along with most other biblical literalists, believe that if you doubt the literal truth of any part of the Bible, you've taken the first step on a path that almost certainly leads to atheism. What I'm getting at here is, what if Jordan Peterson looks like the future of Christianity? Is that really a bad thing? I definitely don't think it's optimal, but I don't think you can argue that it's worse than what we have now, and it might prove to be an intermediate step to where we wanted to go anyway. If the majority of Christians became Jordan Peterson Christians, who explicitly think of the Bible as fiction, I would find that preferable to what we have now. 
In fact, that's pretty close to what I described a second ago. Christianity as a social club where some people meet to talk about things like meaning and wisdom while explicitly recognizing that it's mythology. That actually is pretty close to what Jordan is promoting. I mentioned in part one that Jordan isn't taking the time to clarify to his audience that he doesn't believe what they think he believes. It seems to me that a lot of them just want to be told that their religion isn't stupid. They can accept science and reason without becoming an atheist. A cynical person might say that Peterson doesn't want to lose money by alienating a huge segment of his audience, and he's just pandering to the religious crowd. A more charitable view might be that he's just unaware that a large segment of his audience is not on the same page as him. I don't know what the answer is, but I suspect that his Nietzschean view of the death of God as potentially devastating to Western civilization has something to do with it. If he really believes that the continuation of Western civilization is at stake, and that we have no reason to be moral without believing in some version of God, then he might not want to tamper with the Christian beliefs of some of his audience if he doesn't have to. On Peterson's view, you could almost think of God as reduced to an abstract principle that justifies objective morality and creates a foundation on which order can form. You can't be a non-believer in your action, you see, because Harris's metaphysics is fundamentally Christian. So he acts out a Christian metaphysics, but he says, well, I don't believe it. It's like, well, yeah, you do, because you're acting it out. You just say you don't believe it, but what you do, believe what it. Do you mean, what do you mean he's acting, acting it out? Like what, for example? Well, he doesn't rob banks, doesn't kill people, doesn't rape, doesn't murder, you know? I mean, look, in, in, good, in, 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 in crime and punishment, for example... So you think yeah. when, when you don't do those things, basically... So Harris does not believe in any gods and is therefore an atheist. But think about what Peterson is saying there. Your behavior is the criterion determining what you are, rather than what you consciously believe. I think this working definition of belief has obvious implications for Peterson when he calls himself a Christian. He doesn't rob banks or murder, and by his definition, that's living as if Christianity is true. This no-true-Scotsman reasoning functions as a defense against data that doesn't fit in Jordan's worldview. So when I show you an atheist who's not a murderer, or large groups of atheists in certain countries that are better to live in than highly religious countries, which, by the way, is the rule and not the exception, he can just say, well, they're not really atheists. And if I show you Christian murderers, well, they're not really Christians. In a Reddit AMA, Peterson declared that, quote, Nazism was an atheist doctrine. So you heard him claim that refraining from murder and rape constitutes being a Christian, but it's not as if before Jesus came along everyone thought those things were just fine. You don't get to claim that opposition to murder, rape, and bank robbery are exclusively Christian, because those sorts of things are condemned cross-culturally and were forbidden by law prior to the advent of Christianity. These values are not unique to Christianity, and not all Christians have them. The fact that prohibitions on these sorts of activities arise independently in all cultures strongly suggests that human nature is in play to some degree. As Hitchens was fond of saying, the Jews wouldn't have gotten as far as Mount Sinai if they were under the impression that murder and theft were okay. It does make sense in light of game theory and evolutionary biology that these sorts of norms would emerge naturally. Peterson tends to dislike, I think rightly, those who claim that practically everything about us is a result of cultural conditioning and resist attributing anything to human nature. But he regularly claims that the only reason we don't rape and murder is because of the Christian culture we, we grew up in. With. Dostoevsky said straightforwardly, if there's no God, so if there's no higher value, let's say, if there's no transcendent value, then you can do whatever you want. And that's the th question that he's investigating. And you see, this is why I have such frustration, say, with people like Sam Harris, the sort of radical atheists, because they seem to think that once human beings abandon their, their grounding in the transcendent, that the 
the plausible way forward is with a kind of purest rationality that automatically attributes to other people equivalent value. It's like, I just don't understand that. They, they, they believe that that's the rational pathway. What the hell is irrational about me getting exactly what I want from every one of you whenever I want it at every possible second? Why is that uh, irrational? And how possibly is that more irrational than us cooperating so we can both have a good time of it? I don't understand that. I mean, it's as if the, the psychopathic tendency is irrational. There's nothing irrational about it. It's pure naked self-interest. How is that irrational? I don't understand that. Where, where's the pathway from rationality to, to an egalitarian virtue? Why the hell not every man for himself and the devil take the hindmost? It's a perfectly coherent philosophy. And it's actually one that you can institute in the world with a fair bit of material success if you want to do it. So, I don't, un see, to me, I think that, that the universe that people like Dawkins and Harris uh, inhabit is so intensely conditioned by mythological presuppositions that they take for granted the, the ethic that emerges out of that as if it's just a given, a rational given. And this, of course, precisely do not Nietzsche's observation as well as Dostoevsky's. That's Nietzsche's observation. You don't get it. The ethic that you think is normative is a consequence of its, of, its of its nesting inside this tremendously lengthy history, much of which was expressed in mythological formulation. You wipe that out. You don't get to keep all the presuppositions and just assume that they're rationally axiomatic. They're, to make a rational If you're truly acting selfishly and want to maximize the benefits you receive from other people, you need to cooperate with them. You can use game theory to demonstrate mathematically why cooperation ends up producing better outcomes for the individual in the long run. So if you're asking what's irrational about screwing everyone over all the time and cheating them, the answer is that it depends. It depends on how long the game is. If you're only concerned about the next 10 seconds of your life, then yes, screw everyone over, abandon altruism, and behave like a psychopath. But if you're thinking farther than 10 seconds in the future, you're not going to want to do that. It's in your interest to not have everyone hate you which they will if you gain a reputation as one totally unconcerned for anyone other than yourself. If you're acting purely selfishly and rationally, you should cooperate with others and behave altruistically and show kindness. People will reciprocate, you'll acquire a valuable reputation that will benefit you in the future, and you won't be punished in various ways by other people. People can choose who they interact with, so always screwing them over is not in your long-term self-interest. I'm sure you've noticed, but it feels good to help other people and do kind things. Your brain rewards you for those actions with pleasure. And why would that sort of behavior be incentivized unless it was in some way adaptive? Richard Dawkins, in his book The Selfish Gene, explains how selfish genes can give rise to altruistic individuals. If genes are the unit of selection, if natural selection acts on the gene level, then it's in the interest of the gene you're carrying for you, the individual, to behave altruistically to other individuals who are also carrying a copy of that gene. The gene is acting entirely selfishly, it just wants as many copies of itself as possible. But the optimal strategy from the gene's perspective is for the individual, the carrier of the gene, to help other carriers of the same gene and refrain from harming them, all things being equal. I'm not saying this is right because it's natural. I'm only trying to explain why evolution would have crafted human nature in such a way to give rise to pro-sociality and altruism, prohibitions against murder and theft, norms that promote cooperation, and so on. And there's a lot in the selfish gene, by the way, and this is only one part of it. Dawkins also invents the word meme in that book. 
So moving up the scale of emergence from the gene level to the level of organisms where we live, up here, nature has created non-zero-sum games. A zero-sum game is an interaction between two people in which one wins totally and the other loses totally. A non-zero-sum game is one in which the benefits accrued by cooperation exceed benefits accrued by screwing over others, at least in the long run. Peterson would have a point if everything was a zero-sum game, but that's not the situation we're in. In any environment where non-zero-sum games arise, evolution will select for cooperation. In such environments, cooperation and altruism is adaptive for the same reason anything else would be adaptive. It's favored by natural selection. And this is why I brought up the iterated prisoner's dilemma. When you have multiple, non-zero-sum interactions with the same people over and over again, those who take into account the interests of others will be favored by natural selection. As long as selection is on the gene level, and the conflicts we find ourselves in as social animals are not zero-sum, these things will be selected for. You can demonstrate mathematically, using game theory, that in environments that create non-zero-sum games, cooperation maximizes individual self-interest as well as collective flourishing. As social animals, we all sort of understand this intuitively, even without any game theory or evolutionary biology to explain why we feel this way. And of course, Peterson also understands everything I just said. When he's not speaking in the context of religion, he's completely on the same page and knows that you'd essentially have to be a math denier to believe that psychopathic selfishness is the most rational long-term strategy. And yet, he said in that clip, quote, It's as if the psychopathic tendency is irrational. There's nothing irrational about it. It's pure, naked self-interest. How is that irrational? End quote. Again, if you're really acting in your own self-interest, you want other people to be on your side and not against you. He said that you can employ that kind of selfishness with great material success. But again, it depends how long the game you're playing is. It demonstrably does not work in the long term. If the kind of immoral behavior he's outlining were actually in our rational long-term interests, natural selection would have favored a morality that took the more efficient route. And it did take the more efficient route, and that's what I've been trying to explain. And not only with humans, but with other social species as well. In one interview when he wasn't speaking in the context of religion, Jordan casually said that you shouldn't act totally selfishly, quote, because everyone will hate you, which is essentially a 40,000-foot view of what I'm trying to say. The last questioner in the Matt Dillahunty-Jordan Peterson debate asked something along the lines I've been arguing. Roughly, isn't there evolutionary logic behind having an innate sense of morality? And don't we have morality in common with other cultures and with other species? In response, Jordan talked about Carl Jung and then said this. I, I mean, I tried to lay out these views the answer to your question, in detail in my first book. It's about 600 pages long. And it's, and it's really, 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 really hard. But it does address what you're asking. And I don't think there's a real simpler way of doing it. I couldn't, I didn't find one. I've noticed that this is a bit of a habit for Peterson. When he can't defend what he's saying, he'll respond with something like, well, it would take me 40 hours to explain what I mean by that. Or, you'd have to read these several books or watch that entire lecture series to even begin to understand what I'm getting at. For a long time, I've felt like Jordan Peterson has had some kind of spell over all of us. It seems like nearly everyone is either foaming at the mouth and can't think clearly about him because they hate him so much, or he gets a total pass and is immediately forgiven when he says objectively stupid things, like the Soviet Union was a secular humanist country or that Nazism was an atheist doctrine, or my personal favorite, that ancient humans, possibly through the use of psychedelics, knew about the double helix structure of DNA thousands of years ago. And why does he suspect this to be true? Because of ancient paintings of two snakes wrapped around each other, which happens to be how snakes mate. 
He made this claim on two occasions, at least on film. The link is in the description. He really said that ancient humans knew about the double helix structure of DNA because he sees paintings of snakes wrapped around each other. Again, the link is in the description and you should see it for yourself. Jordan's fans often claim that his opponents misrepresent him. And I can tell you from doing research for these episodes, that's absolutely true. And I find this frustrating because no one needs to attack him for beliefs he doesn't have to cast doubt on his reliability as a philosopher or scientist. Why is anyone misrepresenting his views when his views include sympathy to alternative medicine, flirtations with climate change denial, and a claim that ancient shamans knew about the molecular structure of DNA? Again, it's like everyone is either foaming at the mouth and can't think straight, or they'll give him a pass for anything. He also seems to get a pass for his Christian apologetic tropes, like we would have no reason to refrain from rape and murder without God. At least one difference between Jordan and a YouTube creationist who would say the same thing is that Peterson redefines every other word he uses in order to make his point, which is why his speech on religion can be so irritating and unclear. Him ...of being deliberately obtuse and obfuscating. In any case, ask yourself, if Ray Comfort or William Lane Craig asserted that all atheists are murderers, how would you react? Would you allow them to redefine every relevant word to make such a sentence coherent? I don't think so. And so just in case you're inclined to allow Jordan such a luxury, please consider not. It's strange to me that I'm not sitting here with somebody like Ray Comfort when I'm told you're not really an atheist because you're too good to be an atheist. And this is what atheists hear all the time when they come out, they've been sidelined because of religious privilege around the world for years, and then atheists come out to their family members or friends or people they've known for years, and they're like, you're an atheist? How can that be? You're such a good person. I've known you all this time. It's because the mindset of what people have about what an atheist is has been poisoned by religious proclamations. We have been denigrated from the pulpit, and it is seeped into every aspect of culture right up to the height of intellectual pursuits. And it's time for that to end. That's all I have for you today. Okay, I have two new patrons to thank, Richard Crossan and Daniel Trilling. Thank you, Richard, and thank you, Daniel. And I have to thank my Hall of Fame patrons, Peace Machine, Jesta, and Phil Stilwell. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still, roughly speaking, presuppose the metaphorical substrate of the archetypal dominance hierarchy, you can like us on Facebook, leave a five-star lobster, or tell your friends about neo-Marxism. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time.